It has been a wonderful week with the Thompsons. Uh, they've been in a bunch of our different groups. Come on up, Dave. Don't stop. Don't stop. I'm not going to be long. So, uh, just. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but they've been in a lot of our groups throughout the week, and uh, I've had the privilege of being at most of those uh, and hearing the different stories as him and Becky have shared uh, their lives with us. And so, just thank you um, for pleasure. following the Lord and being willing to share that story with us. I know you continue to inspire my heart every time I hear these stories. It just, uh, yes, that's God. There's another aspect of who he is, right, and how he yeah. serves and cares for us. So thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing. I'm excited to hear one more time what God has for you for us. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your very warm welcome. And to all, all the church for your coming out to these uh, meetings and inopportune times and when there are other things you could be doing and yet your hearts are drawn to God. One of my, uh, it's, it's Valentine's Day, of course. Uh, glad that you guys uh, celebrated this way. Um, one of my favorite Valentine's Day stories is about a man who worked in a lawnmower parts uh, warehouse. Somehow he got the idea that his wife didn't want a card for Valentine's Day. So at the end of his work day, someone brought him up to speed and, and he realized uh, that he needed to do something quickly. He didn't have time to go to the store and buy a card on the way home. He wasn't sure he could pick the right one. And so he was in a quandary. And then he looked around and he saw that in the uh, waiting area there were, there were lawnmower uh, trade magazines scattered around the office. And he got a brilliant idea. Using scissors and glue, he created a card with pictures of lawnmowers next to which he wrote, I lawn for you mower and mower each day. <laughs> His wife loved it so much that she put it on the refrigerator door. This story so inspired me that uh, I, I really didn't have time this week to go looking for a card for Becky. And uh, so I, I was thinking of making an anatomically correct uh, drawing of a card for Becky with a heart on it and say to her, I love you from my right atrium to my aorta. I'm not sure it would make the refrigerator door though. So. But uh, happy Valentine's Day, Becky. I really do love you, as you have followed me all over the world. This coming June will be our 50th wedding anniversary, so praise God. Some of you have been wondering where the world-famous um, uh, country of Gabon can be found, and here it is. So uh, for those of you who didn't know what we were talking about when we said Gabon, it's not a bit, it's not a huge country. It's about the size of the state of Colorado and it has a population of less than two million people. But God loves them. Um, more than 20 years ago in the country of Gabon, a young man named Serge Batuboko entered the Gabonese army. He was a natural leader and highly intelligent and he rose quickly through the ranks. After less than two years, he was picked to work at the presidential palace in the capital city, Libreville. A year later, he signed up to be trained as a parachutist in his spare time. He was a fearless jumper, and uh, he did so well that along with nine others, he was um, chosen to become a trainer of parachutists in the Gabonese army, while th though he was still working uh, at the presidential palace. On the group's last training run, he and nine of his buddies who had been chosen for this were to jump from a C-130 flying at 5,000 feet um, over a large, standy area on the Gabonese coast. 
As they began jumping from the plane, a violent tropical storm exploded around them. Serge was the last one out and jumped on cue, but the release mechanism that connected him to a cable inside the door of the plane jammed. For what seemed like an eternity, he found himself uh, swinging violently behind the plane, just missing the tail and held by this strap. His, uh, his um, uh, officer who was in the plane uh, finally managed to cut the, this cable, but during this time that he was flailing behind the plane, he, he just knew that he was going to die in that moment. And though he was not a believer, he had heard about God, and so he prayed a desperate prayer. He cried out, God, save me, and I will give you my life. A moment later, his instructor cut the strap that held him. Serge rocketed 5,000 feet to the ground, his unopened parachute streaming above him. He managed to deploy his backup parachute, but it got tangled in his main parachute, and it slowed him a little bit, but he hit the water at high speed, and all that he remembered was searing pain in his legs, and then he blacked out. He, would, um, he was found... A few, several hours later, lying unconscious in the sand. And he has no recollection of how he got from the water to the sand. He woke up in a hospital bed with major fractures of both legs. And a day later, his commander came to visit him and reluctantly told him that all of his buddies were blown out to sea and drowned. What, is, what are the odds that a man would survive that and be the only one who survived that? Well, several days a pastor and some elders from an Alliance church in the capital city came to the hospital to deliver toiletries and towels and New Testaments to the patients in the hospital. They do, did this regularly. When they came to Serge's room, they greeted him and asked what happened. And Serge suddenly just broke down and wept. So they prayed for him. He eventually told them his story, including his desperate promise to God. And after listening, they shared the gospel with him. That day, Serge Batboko found Jesus. Several weeks later, as he read a New Testament the Christians had given him, Serge sensed that God was calling him to leave the army and become a pastor. When he told his superior officers, they thought it was hilarious, thinking he was joking, but he wasn't. He persisted. So they reminded him that he had signed up for 10 years and that if he, after he recovered, he didn't return to active duty, he was going to go to jail. Well, Serge was serious. He told his commanding officer he was ready to go to jail. When he was finally discharged from the hospital, his commander sent him to the military prison, thinking he would quickly change his mind. But Serge did not budge and even seemed to enjoy his time in prison. After two months, his commander called in a French military psychiatrist to talk with him. The psychiatrist had no time for religion. Um, many, very few French psychiatrists are... Uh, believers. So after talking with Serge, he announced that Serge had PTSD and should be allowed several years to recover. The colonel agreed to a three-year leave of absence, and shortly after, Serge enrolled in the Alliance Bible School. Three years went by, and the colonel who had recruited him called him one day and asked if he was ready to return to active duty. Serge said, no, sir, God called me to preach, and I have one more year of Bible school. Threats of more jail time did not sway him, so after consulting with others, the colonel called Serge in and signed a full release. Serge completed Bible school training a year later 
and after a few years, he was ordained. Not long after that, he received a scholarship to study uh, administration and management and finances, accounting in France. Five years later, he became the administrative and financial director of Bangalore Hospital, the hospital where Becky and I served for 34 years. He is still working as the director of the hospital and one of the finest Christian leaders on any continent that I have ever served with. Under his leadership, the hospital expanded tremendously, added many additional medical services, tripled its staff. He convinced the Ministry of Health to allow us to develop medical special tra specialty training with discipleship programs in general surgery, anesthesia, ophthalmology, while at the same time enhancing the nursing school program. He has also been a strong advocate for the hospital's mission to proclaim the gospel to the sick. During the years that he has been in leadership, more than 15,000 patients have prayed with our chaplains to receive Christ. Because of church's military service, his proven integrity, and his courageous testimony as a believer, he is greatly respected by officials throughout Gabon. Jesus did not come into the world to save just Christians. Uh, sorry, just save just Americans. He came to the whole world so the whole world could know him and worship him, and that included Serge Batiboko. Alliance Christians were there to bring the gospel to Serge in his hospital bed because in the middle of America's greatest depression, a ragged brand of men and women took the gospel to Gabon. Because of their obedience, on the day Sayers needed to hear the gospel, there were faithful Christians to lead him to Christ. Today, there are 115 organized Alliance churches in Gabon and an estimated 26,000 believers. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but before he ascended into heaven, he made it our job to tell the world. It is our job. One day Jesus spoke to an inquiring religious leader named Nicodemus and said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God sent his son into the world to not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Four times, four times in two verses. Jesus referred not to just Israel, but to the whole world. It's true that only the Holy Spirit can draw people to God. But do we have a role? And what is that role? The Bible says we have a critically important role. Jesus made it unmistakably clear to his disciples before he ascended into heaven that it was their job to proclaim his gospel to all the nations of the world. They would not be alone, but they would have the Holy Spirit with them and in them. Serge's conversion and his ministry today is the result of our prayers in the Alliance, our giving to world missions, and our going. As Serge was being dragged through the air behind an airplane, God was preparing him for service. How great and wonderful is the mercy and the wisdom of God. But spiritual successes like these require God's people back home to make sacrifices and to pray. In her biography of Amy Carmichael, Elizabeth Elliot, who is one of the wives of the five missionaries who in Ecuador were killed many years ago, 
She recounts a story about prayer. Amy had arrived in Japan as a single missionary in April of 1893. Despite criticism from older missionaries, soon after she arrived, she abandoned her European clothing in favor of a Japanese kimono. This delighted the Japanese people. She was trying to reach for Christ. After two years of study, Amy was able to speak and understand Japanese well enough to begin evangelizing in nearby villages with the help of a few Japanese believers. Up until this time, the number of converts to Christianity in Japan were very few and were far, uh, far apart. A small group of nine Christians in a Buddhist village called Hiroshi invited Amy to come and help them reach others in their community. Before visiting the village, however, Amy prepared herself by praying, and she made this an, an incredibly bold prayer. She asked God what he intended to do there. She reasoned that if she could be sure of that, she could pray with faith. Kind of backwards, it sounded like to me the first time I read this. Her custom was to spend two to three hours a day in prayer. As she was praying and listening to the Holy Spirit, she felt pressed in her spirit, that was her term, to ask for a soul, just one soul. The next day, as she traveled to Hiroshi with her friend, she shared God's word to her and then to the small group of Japanese believers there. They were skeptical. But that evening, a young silk weaver became a Christian. A month later, she visited Hiroshi again. As before, the Lord urged Amy to pray, this time for two souls to be saved. That evening, Hiroshi the silk weaver brought a friend who believed, and an old woman believed. Two weeks passed, and this time Amy and her Japanese companion asked the Lord how many they should pray for at Hiroshi. God impressed upon them that they should ask for four souls. By this time, other missionaries um, were joining them in prayer, but some of the missionary men felt that this was a bit presumptuous. Um, but the, nevertheless, the two women went to Hiroshi and shared what God had revealed to them. The believers at Hiroshi, uh, they were skeptical too, and they kind of balked at asking God for four more people to be saved, especially since nobody in town seemed interested, and Amy was insisting that new believers actually burn their idols, something the earlier missionaries had felt was too, too demanding. So as Amy was about to close the meeting, a woman said, I want to believe that was one. Then the woman's son came and knelt beside her. That was two. On the way back from the meeting, they stopped at the home of Christians who had a friend waiting to ask Amy the way of salvation. That was three. Where was number four? Then the man said, oh, my wife wants to become a Christian. She wants to be a Jesus person, but she is away at her own village. She came back early the next morning and confessed before her relatives that she wanted to follow Christ. Four. But God was not finished. Four weeks later, Amy felt an irresistible divine pressure to ask according to 1 John 5.14, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. The petition this time, eight souls from Hiroshi. There was even more resistance from the Christians this time and criticism. After a tense discussion, the lay leader at Hiroshi said to her, you are a Jesus walking one. If his voice speaks to you, though he speaks not to us, we will believe. That night, 
eight more souls came to Jesus. Before the next visit to Hiroshi, the Lord did not give Amy any number at all. But when they arrived and prayed with the Christians, there a few more people came to Jesus. By this time, the church had almost had more than doubled. The faith of the Hiroshi Christians was now strong, and she felt free to go on to other ministries. She had done her job, which was to pray, trust Jesus, and preach. The Holy Spirit did the rest. Is our role important? It is critically important. It is our job. And whether it takes prayer or whether it takes going, it is our job. Because of our financial sacrifices for world missions, Alliance churches are able to send missionaries to people groups in many nations. When we combine, I mean, it's up to around 81 right now, the last I heard. When we combine financial support with faithful and powerful prayer, our missionaries are able to do their jobs and their work is marked by miracles of grace and spiritual power. I know this, Becky and I know this, because many times when we would send out our newsletters, we would ask for our supporters on our mailing list to pray for these things to happen. And again, and again, and again, they happened. One time we were praying for a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, I'd never even seen that much money. Um, and uh, we, we had to pray for a whole year at the end of our tour. Our last church that we were in wasn't a big, rich church. It was a little, tiny church. Uh, and uh, somebody there who had received an inheritance came to us and said, you know, <clears throat> our children are doing very well financially. We are too. We don't need this inheritance. And so we want to give you part of it, a quarter of a, quarter of a million dollars. So God answers prayers. When missionaries are sent and forgotten by their sending churches, they are left to pray and struggle alone against the powerful forces of darkness that oppose them, making their job immeasurably harder. How important is world missions to Jesus? Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 24, 14, where Jesus made it clear that before he would return to earth, the good news about the kingdom would be preached in all the world and to all nations. The church's role in world evangelism is so important to God that Jesus will not return until the church completes its job. As we heard last Sunday, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his 12 disciples together and he commanded them to go and make disciples of all nations. This was not a random reminder. It was his very last command. Should we, shouldn't we pay greater attention to the last words our master spoke to us before he ascended into heaven? I think so. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, the apostle Paul wrote, we are Christ's ambassadors. That's a, you know, I don't know if you've ever met an ambassador, but they're very important people. So God has made us very important in his kingdom. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is our holy duty. This is a stupendous promotion in the kingdom of God. God will use his millions of angels to help us, but the job of claiming the most astonishing news in the history of the universe is ours to complete. God has made our voices his voice to the world. When we fail to do our job, people do not hear God speak. In Muslim countries, it can be very difficult to make disciples. 
In November of 2019, I was walking on a busy street in Egypt, in the city where we served for five years, and I heard, suddenly heard a woman's voice call my name. Dr. David, that's what they called me there. Your first name is your name. Your second name is supposed to be your father's name, and your third name is supposed to be your grandfather's, so I was Dr. David. Um, I turned in surprise, and here was a dear friend of ours that um, I had not seen for more than a year. She was wearing a traditional black robe, and her head was covered, and her face was covered. All you could see were her eyes. Everything was black. Um, but I knew who it was right away. And uh, she was, um, her name, I'll say, is Aisha. That wasn't her real name. Um, I'm, and I said to her, Aisha, I'm so happy to see you. I, you know, Becky and I have been praying for you. Um, but since a woman in a Muslim country can't really talk alone to a man on the street, she was, she was standing 10 feet away and she wasn't looking at me. And so I was trying not to look at her either. Um, and people were going by and kind of like, well, who's this white guy? What, what is he doing standing in the middle of the street? But it was trying to talk to her. She said, I'm so happy to see you. How are you? And, and so um, I said, I was fine. But you know, the last time I had seen her a year earlier, she had been... Um, she had been divorced the fifth time by her husband. Now in Islam, you can divorce your wife by saying, I divorced you three times. And he had done this three times. After three times, the wife is not obligated to come back. But she had to go somewhere. She went to her sister's house and she explained that uh, after six months, her sister and husband said, you can't stay here anymore. And she had no place else to go. Besides, her husband was living in the ap apartment that she had paid for, it was her apartment. So she went back to him, and he promptly locked her in the bedroom. Um, and uh, she said, um, you know, she said, um, after my family sent me back to my husband, he keeps me locked in the bedroom. He only gives me food once a day, sometimes only once every two days. And I, was, I just felt terrible. I said, oh, Aisha, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And then I looked at her, you know, and she was trying not to. I said, Be Mrs. Becky and I have prayed for you for so much, for so many times. And she said, don't worry about me. Jesus the Messiah is with me. And I have my Bible. I talk with him every day as I read. And he comes and tells me of his love for me. He is the one who comforted me. So don't worry about me. How is Mrs. Becky? I wanted so much to take her hand, even just a hugger. But of course, that would have been scandalous. So all I could say was, Mrs. Becky is doing well, and she sends you her love. And she wiped her eyes and said, God bless you, Dr. David. Just seeing you here, I know God made this possible to encourage me. It has given me so much joy. I have to go now and get medicine for, for my husband at the hospital pharmacy. He beats me nearly every day because I refuse to return to Islam, and he will beat me if I take too long. But Jesus is with me. And with that, she was gone. The first time we ever saw Aisha was the week that we arrived at the hospital where we worked for five years. It was a Sunday evening and at the church that's on the hospital compound, uh, one of only two churches in a city of 400,000 people, it was a Sunday evening and she was the only woman in the church who had her head covered, a clear indication that she was a Muslim. The Christian women do not cover their heads in Egypt. At the end of the service, she suddenly stood and spoke in Arabic for several minutes in a way that seemed very passionate to us. We, hadn't, uh, we didn't follow her. And then abruptly she sat down. 
The Christians in the church seemed kind of stunned by, by what she had said. It turned out to be a public declaration of her newfound faith in Jesus. She was a nurse working at the hospital, and she said, later we found out all the things she said. One of the things she said was the reason she had come to Christ was she saw the love of Christ in the Egyptian doctors that were there and the way they treated the Muslim patients and the way, uh, and the way they treated the nurses. But eventually her husband heard about her confession of faith. He stormed into the hospital. He found her on the medical ward where she was the head nurse. He dragged her screaming out of the hospital, beating her as he dragged her. But Aisha was undeterred. She re reappeared at work the next day, although she had bruises on her face. This happened, this same thing happened every Christian celebration because she would openly attend the church services, Easter, Christmas, New Year's. Even some of the Christian nurses said she was crazy for being so open about her faith in Jesus, especially since bringing shame to her family could result in her death. She was the best nurse in the hospital and one of, the only four, one of only four university-trained nurses at the hospital before Becky started uh, the nursing school. Nevertheless, Muslim nursing aides working under her despised her. They often insulted her and refused to take her orders. Now, five years later, she was a prisoner in her own home. That day, her husband had let her go, and God had allowed her to run into me on the street to encourage not just her, but me. Why should she, would she choose such suffering and risk violent death at the hands of her own family? It was because of her great love for Jesus and her desire to share her faith with others. Suffering not only brings Christians closer to Jesus, it makes them more like him. We take for granted our freedom to openly follow Jesus and proclaim the gospel to others. Someday we might pay a price to share Christ with others. Will we be easily silenced or deterred from serving Christ overseas or brave like Aisha? I have no doubt that her husband kept her locked up in their bedroom in part because he was afraid she would infect others in the family with the gospel, the gospel that freed her soul from the bondage of Islam. It is a terrible religion. It is a terrible religion. And the gospel just frees these people in their hearts. How many of you heard of, have heard of the Joshua Project? Okay. Um, all right, pretty good. Yes. So that makes my job a little easier. After 2,000 years of proclaiming the gospel in many countries in the world, missionaries are still saying that we need to send more others to help them. Why is that? Let me just try and answer with a few slides here. First of all, uh, let's look at the progress of the gospel. After all this time, uh, and all who have preceded us, we can go to the next slide, uh, only 41.6% of the world's people groups have heard the good news. You can see this on the map in green. Established significant church presence is indicated in green. Unreached or least reached people groups, our areas are in red. Yellow or intermediate, no color, it's, they don't have any information about it. Of course, God can change the situation very quickly by pouring out his spirit on the world instead of limiting himself to missionaries in certain places in certain times, but I think that God will not do that 
without first raising up a host of missionaries, a great host of missionaries from all of the churches of the world to finish this task. According to the Joshua Project, there are 17,400 some distinct people groups around the world. And uh, slide three here, 18.7% are significantly reached. 21% are, seven are partially reached, and there's definitions on their website, but 42.5% are unreached. Unreached people groups are groups among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group with outside assistance. Of course, the populations of all U, uh, un, unreached people groups, they call them UPGs, and, um, has grown exponentially over the centuries, making our task much, much harder. But so have our resources grown exponentially over the centuries. And I mentioned that last week. So let me, let me take a poll. Um, if you wanted to finish the task of, that Jesus gave his church to take the gospel to the whole world, and to all the unreached people groups in the, in the world, where would you focus your efforts? One, where there are already strong self-propagating churches, or two, where there are no churches? How many for one? Oh, you guys are smart. All right, how many for two? Absolutely. We, would, we should focus our efforts where there are no churches. The Joshua Project has, identi has identified, next slide, the number four, uh, 5,045 what they call frontier people groups. These are really priority groups for us. And the frontier groups have like one, to one, one person out of a thousand or fewer Christians of any kind, any kind, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, um, and no evidence of a self-sustaining gospel movement. The total population of all the frontier people groups comes to 1.9 billion. One fourth of the world's current population, so we're not done. I think we can all agree that this is where Christians the world over should be focusing their efforts, but sadly, that is not happening. Most Christian missionaries serving in the world today are proclaiming the gospel to the most reached people groups. In fact, roughly 30 times more missionaries are working with reached people groups as are working with unreached people groups. And even fewer go to the frontier people groups where there are virtually no believers. So what do you think? How many of you think this is going to help us finish the job more quickly? It's not. The exception to this is if in regions where there are many churches and there are many believers, we are training missionaries to send to the least reach people groups. Gabon is no longer in the unreached uh, category. It's not in the 1040 window, but because we are training uh, medical disciples who are going to unreached areas in the world, it is still strategic. I know that many of you have heard the 1040 window, so here it is. Uh, this is an area, and it looks a little strange. Flip it to the next one. Uh, it looks a little strange, keep going. Um, there it is, uh, because they've taken the, all of the country, part of the countries that are reached or not considered unreached off the picture. So this is the area between the 10th parallel and the 40th parallel on the globe where the greatest concentration of unreached people groups live. 
And I'm happy to report to you that the Alliance has moved 80% of its missionaries into this window, as have other like-minded mission groups. The 1040 window is also where almost all of the frontier uh, people groups are found. If you could back up that one uh, to the next slide, let's go back one more. Um, I just want to point out to you India. The greatest concentration of unreached people groups in the world by far is on the Indian subcontinent. And you can see that. Okay. Well, what is our role in world missions? How well are Christians around the world financing world missions? Now, if you take all Christians, including Catholics, Orthodox, you know, Protestant, everything, uh, liberal um, and uh, conservative, biblical, unbiblical, $677 billion is given, goes to local pastoral ministries. Uh, out of $677 billion, 96.8 goes to local pastoral ministries. 2.9% um, goes to home missions. 0 0.3, $3 out of every thousand, goes to evangelize the non-Christian world, which is different from unreached. 0.001%, one in 100,000 of all funds Christian Americans give goes to reaching unreached people groups. We have a problem. The Joshua Project estimates that the evangelical Christians could provide all of the funds needed to plant a church. This is just the evangelical Christians to plant a church in each of the 6,900 unreached people groups in the world with only 0 0.3%, 0.03, $3 out of, of 10,000 of their income. $3 out of every thousand. So if $3 out of every thousand of our income we gave to reach unreached people groups, we could do it. The worldwide Christian church today includes countries in North America, South America, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Africa, and islands. It has roughly 3,000 times the financial resources and 9,000 times the manpower needed to complete the Great Commission in our lifetimes. The really good news is that most Alliance churches are giving more than 10% of their income to reaching the nations, the unreached nations on our planet, not 0.03%. Go to slide eight, there it is, or maybe the next one. Over the past three decades, something disturbing has been happening in the Church of Jesus Christ, particularly in developed countries. Satan's greatest desire has always been to stop world missions. One of the ways he works is to make the church forget about its critical job in world evangelism, especially in reaching the least reached peoples of the world, who are often located in remote, dangerous, economically deprived parts of the world. One of Satan's most effective ways to distract churches is to make the world, world's projects our projects. And I'm going to name a few. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to insult or offend anybody. But these include humanitarian projects to feed people, bring clean water to people who need it, educate children all over the world, bring health care to the poor, support orphans, and specifically, they all include the preaching of the gospel. Those are humanitarian efforts. When coupled with the gospel, however, these projects can be wonderful ways to show people the love of God. 
Without the gospel message, they gobble up massive amounts of money, much of it from tender-hearted Christians, without significantly changing people, communities, or godless cultures. Good works without the gospel do not save people's lives or glorify God. They may prolong lives or reduce suffering. I'm a surgeon. I didn't save lives. I prolonged lives, many of them but I didn't save them. Only God can save a person's life for eternity. So good works without the gospel do not save people's lives or glorify God. They may prolong lives or reduce suffering, but they glorify man, capital M-A-N. By their insistence that life on earth without God is all there is, well-meaning humanitarian, humanitarian programs promote eternal death, not eternal life. That may seem harsh to you, but I've seen it firsthand. The most important thing we have to give people is not medicine, although medicine is very important, and I would never withhold it from anybody, who, whether, no matter what their religion is. It's not love. I would never withhold it. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Because it gives people the power to change and to live forever. Could it be that 20 centuries after Jesus came, American Christians are more concerned about America than about reaching the remaining 40% of the world's people groups with the gospel message? Have we placed our job of taking the gospel to every tribe and nation in the world at the bottom of our bucket list? Let me just answer this with three scriptural reasons to close out three scriptural reasons that world missions should be a priority for America's churches. The first is that without the gospel, people die forever. In Genesis 2.16, the Lord warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. God says to Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 4, the soul who sins will die. We're all condemned. He says in Romans 1, 31 and 32, sinful people who suppress the truth by their wickedness know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. When you hear the word die in scriptures, it should explode like a bomb in your mind because God is not saying that those who do not trust in him will just cease to exist after they die. He's saying they will spend eternity, and I'm going to say that word, in hell. Jesus talked about hell even more than he talked about heaven. Jesus made it unmistakably clear in his teachings. The second scriptural reason is that God does not want the wicked to perish in hell. There is a great misconception in America that many who call themselves Christians hold to, and that is that God cares nothing about those who refuse them, and he takes pleasure in sending them to hell. That is a lie. In Ezekiel 33:11, God says, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people. Why should you die? That's God speaking. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, God says, I am eager to relent and not punish. But how can people believe this if we don't tell them? God is grieved when we turn a deaf ear to his call to world evangelism. He is grieved when people die without ever hearing. God wants wicked people to come to him in repentance and live. 
And finally, the third scriptural reason to make world missions a priority in our churches and in our lives is that Jesus commanded the church to keep announcing the gospel and not stop until the whole world has heard it. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him if they have never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? Apart from the verbal proclamation of the gospel, it's not enough to go and just live Jesus in front of them. We must also speak the gospel. There is no way for people to hear that Jesus made a sure way of escape. Jesus is really and truly the only way to heaven. When I completed my pre-med studies at Geneva College, I was exposed for the first time to bad Reformed theology. I'm not saying that Reformed theology is bad. Don't get me wrong. Geneva is an excellent Christian university, but back in the 70s, nearly all of the students from the Reformed Presbyterian Church that I met thought I was crazy to want to be a missionary. Do you know why? They were convinced that since God had already decided who will be saved and who will go to hell, there is no reason for missionaries to trouble themselves about people who are waiting to hear the gospel. Why pray for lost people across the oceans? Why cross oceans to find them and preach to them if God has already decided who will be saved and who will be damned? That's like saying world missions is not our job, it's God's job. That's a lie. Why didn't Jesus say to his disciples if this is true? Well, guys, I've already decided. I've saved you all on the cross, and uh, I've already decided now who's going to be saved and who's going to hell. So don't waste your time trying to save lost people. Their fate is already decided. That's not what he said to his disciples. What Jesus tells us in Scripture is, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Reformed theologian Wayne Grudem writes, when talking about our response to the gospel offer, Scripture continually views us not as mechanism, mechanistic creatures or robots, but as genuine persons who make willing choices to accept or reject the gospel. Jesus invites everyone. He says in Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears, come. And let him who is thirsty, come. And let him who desires, take the water of life. There is a mystery here that we will not understand on this side of heaven. But our lack of understanding of all of God's ways and thoughts does not excuse us from obeying his command to take the gospel to the world. In fact, if the apostles and those who followed them hadn't obeyed and hadn't been willing to die for the sake of the gospel, we might not be here today. The question we must each ask is this one. Do I love Jesus enough to obey him? He said to his disciples in John 15, all who love me will do what I say. Where does that leave us if we turn a deaf ear to God's call to world missions, either praying for missionaries, either supporting missionaries, either going short-term and coming alongside them to encourage them, or going ourselves. Where does that leave us? Do you love God enough to obey him? If your children or grandchildren hear God's call to world missions, will you encourage them to obey, even if it might be dangerous? If your love for Christ is, great, is your love for Christ great enough to sacrifice financially 
to give up buying something that you would like to have so that you can help send a missionary? If God calls you, will you answer? As with all of God's commands, our obedience or our lack of it will neither save us nor cause us to lose our salvation. I want to make that perfectly clear, and I'm sure your pastor has too. But our obedience to the Great Commission will bring great glory to God and blessings to ourselves, our families, our church, and the world. Missions Week is nearly over. But our efforts to complete the Great Commission will not end until Jesus comes. To some, it may seem like a never-ending burden for the church, but in reality, our obedience is a testament to the confidence God has in his spirit-filled, his spirit-inspired people. For endless ages, our glory will be that God gave us, who were previously his enemies, the privilege of taking the good news to all the nations. We will sing songs about this in heaven. We will dance about this in heaven in front of God's thrones. The angels will look in wonder and at the kindness and the wisdom of God because we did this. Because the Great Commission will not be over until Jesus returns, every generation of Christians who have ever lived will have a story to tell. And we will hear it and hear it and hear it. Today, it's our turn. It's our turn. Let's not drop the ball. Let us not fail to do our job, to do our utmost for God's glory. I want to give an invitation to any of you who during this week, or maybe even before, have heard God calling you, tugging on your heart to go and serve as a missionary. And maybe you're not sure, but you have felt that tug. I want to invite you to come up so we can pray for you. So we won't have any music. I don't sing that well, but would you bow your heads, and those of you who have heard God's call, would you come here so that Pastor Sean and I and any others can pray with you? Thank you. Praise God. So, Pastor, let's lay hands on these. I'll pray, Pastor, and then I'll ask you to close, okay? Our Father in heaven, you see what is happening here today because you're here. This is the work of your Holy Spirit. You have spoken, Lord, and these your servants have heard. And Lord, they're offering themselves to you to serve you wherever you desire to send them, Lord, whatever that might involve. And so, Lord, I pray for your great blessing upon them that your Holy Spirit will strengthen them and encourage them and continue to speak to them and show them the way, Father, and guide them every step of the way. Give them the faith to know, Lord, that you will show them, but only a little bit at a time. They just need to walk and hold on to your hands and move forward. I pray, Father, that you will also help those in the church to support them fully, Lord, to never forget them, to pray for them, to pray for their preparation, to pray for their ministries, to pray for their families, Lord, and to pray for what you're going to do through them. So thank you for uh, your voice, Lord, that is mm -hmm. so beautiful, so mm -hmm. loving, 
so comforting and encouraging, but also, Lord, so challenging. Mm. Lord, you call us to do difficult things, but the amazing thing is, is you never call us to do it alone. Mm. You have promised to be with us. You're the one who will empower each and every one of these individuals to follow uh, the call that you've placed in their hearts, to, to be able to fulfill the passions that you've placed in them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to, to continue to step out in courage. Yes. Lord, that they would not be afraid or even in their fear, Lord, that they would step in, follow you wherever you lead. But also, Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength and the resistance to not try to tear down the walls. Mm -hmm. Lord, to recognize that you are the one who breaks down the walls. They are just your servants following where you lead in your timing to the people that you have ordained for them to come bring the gospel message to. So, Lord, we lift each and every one of these individuals before you. May you, may they, may they be glorified, may you be glorified, excuse me, through them, Lord, and through their service to you as they surrender their life, as they take that sacrifice, uh, that sacrificial step to follow you, to to let go of the things this world tells them that they should hang on to and instead cling to Jesus. Lord, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 6. We sang it earlier, a little bit of this, but I just want to read the passage. Lord, this is these young people and these people who are here before you right now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, and these individuals here may be saying right now, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, then God came and flew to him, hovering in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Lord, these young folks, these, no matter what their age is, Lord, they have come before you, not because they are holy, but because you are holy. So, Lord, touch their lips, infuse the gospel into their very being, that when they open up their mouths, that your love would pour out, that your message would stream out of them into those that they speak to, and that many would come to know you as a result. Again, may you be glorified, and may we be blessed as we follow you, and as we as a church come alongside those who you have called, to go, to pray for them, to support them, to love them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Church, you may stand. Extend your hand forward and just say these words with me. 
May God's will be done. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. God bless.